most people's first experience of a brass band is an invading colonial army. But then an interesting phenomenon happens when either the army is defeated or the army departs for one reason or another. Often they leave the brass instruments behind. Local people pick up the brass instruments having never seen them before and they learn to play them and they indigenize them. And all of a sudden the tools of war become repurposed for a whole other spectrum of stuff. Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb. And Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. So, Warren, we've been going to the Hanf Festival of Activist Street Bands since it started in 2006 in Davis Square, Somerville. And every year we go, and it's always really fun and lively, and people are dressed in all kinds of costumes and singing and playing boisterous music. And I've always wondered, like, why is this protest music? You know, I kind of have to admit that I come from a folk music background, and I sing folk music at protests and so I've, I've always wanted to understand what this is about and so it was really incredible for us to go to Hunk this year and record and then to speak with some of the folks that are actively involved with the Hunk Festival and in particular one of its leaders. That person is Rebe Garofalo. He plays drums in the Second Line Social Aid and Pleasure Society Band. In this episode, Rebe talks about the values that protest music adds to an event and how the brass bands offer more than acoustic folk music bands and also how music can be integrated into a protest. Yeah, and now Hunk is in 21 cities and there's festivals all over the world. So I think uh, people are going to really enjoy our conversation with Rebe Garofalo. Welcome, Rebe Garofalo, to the Be Change Podcast. Pleasure to be here. So, Rebe, I'm pretty sure we must have met you when you were performing with the Blue Suede Boppers, but we also know you don't just perform, you also teach. You taught at UMass uh, Boston, the history of popular music. But we're here in particular to talk about a certain type of music that you seem to be passionate about and very involved with. You are active and, and perform with the Second Line Social Aid and Pleasure Society Brass, Brass Band. Band. <laughs> and later yeah. became very involved with the Honk Festival, which features bands like the Second Line. So can you tell us a little bit about what's the story? Like how you know you went from blue suede boppers to this this brass band? Oh. Well, I still play with the Blue Suede Boppers. It's just that we play about three times a year at this point. So I didn't quite go from the Blue Suede Boppers to brass band music. It's more like I'm doing both at the same time and largely for the same reasons. The thing that was interesting to me about the Blue Suede Boppers is that, you know, we, we were a very commercial band. I mean, we used to play all the local swing dances. There was 
a moment where we were the darlings of the swing dance community. And there the concept is, you know, we will play money gigs to raise money and then use that money to play benefit concerts. So we would do like the Cambridge Sister City uh, project used to have a prom every year and we'd play that. So that was fun. So you do the occasional commercial gig to finance the occasional political gig. With the brass band, it's much easier because the only thing we do is political gigs and we do all of them for free. So um, there's no preparation involved whatsoever. <laughs> uh, why brass? Um, and there already is political music, also often folk music. Yeah. Um, so why brass? I think you're correct. There's been protest music since forever. But when I was coming up in the 60s, protest music was a guy playing an acoustic guitar, playing through a bad sound system. Um, and that, to me, was never quite adequate to reach the kind of audience that I want to reach. Why brass is pretty simple. We are loud, we are acoustic, and we are mobile. We can play anywhere we want, anytime we want, with no preparation whatsoever. You put the drum on and you play. And how did you become interested in the connection between uh, music and activism? Uh, well, the music part is easy. My mother's whole side of the family were musicians. So I was born into this huge extended Italian immigrant family in New Haven, Connecticut. And because our grandparents lived at our house, Sunday dinner meant everybody came to our house to eat. And then you'd eat for eight hours, and in between courses, you'd have concerts and parades and vaudeville shows. And um, so I grew up with that. The political part of that was when I went to college, I fell in with folks who were engaged in the civil rights movement, and my political baptism was going to Mississippi in 1964 to do voter, regist voter registration work. And I came away from that experience, you know, I, I came away dreaming of a mass movement powered by music ever since. So some of that was the civil rights movement itself, right? Yes. And they had a, uh, a long history of integrating music into social justice. They absolutely did. I mean, we, everybody sang. We sang for lunch. <laughs> Can you just describe a little bit more about what your role was and what how that impacted you? In Mississippi? Yeah. Yeah, when I, 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 uh, I went to Mississippi to do voter registration work in 1964 when I was 19 years old. And the real watershed moment for me, I mean, there were moments of absolute joy and celebration there. I mean, one of the standout memories I have is singing We Shall Overcome Arm in Arm with Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, and if people don't know who that is, they should Google her. But the takeaway for me was the day that I got beat up on the courthouse lawn while waiting to assist um, some black registrants to, to fill out the registration form to vote. I was standing there at 8 o'clock in the morning and two guys pulled up in a pickup truck and just started beating on me. And I, you know, it was, you know, not one of the more serious beatings that I knew of that summer, but it was enough to terrify me. 
and I managed to find my way back down into the black community where it was a safe space. But in reflecting on that experience, I mean, it just really drove home the notion that all it took was like five minutes of that experience to just strike terror into my heart. And I was working on behalf of people who experienced that kind of terror every day of their lives. That was a big learning experience. I've heard you talk uh, in other places about the role that civil rights music played for the, the movement itself, for the people that it was particularly helpful for them as participants in the, um, in the marches or in the... Yeah. I think, you know, music has the effect of certainly kicking things up a notch, and it's all to the good uh, for that reason. But it also, it has a way of getting you through the tough times. There were lots of stories of people who had been in jail um, talking about how, you know, if it weren't for singing, it would have been hard to make it through. And it, it has that kind of an effect. After you went to college and you embarked on some of these civil rights efforts, how did you then connect that with your love and involvement in music? Well, the guys I lived in, they were all guys. Uh, Yale was had not gone co-ed yet. So the guys I fell in with in college were folk musicians. And we started singing together. And I remember thinking in 1962, before any of this happened, um, I was telling them they should let me wrap some drums around that music and we would make a million dollars. And they would have none of it being folk purists. And I was right. (laughs) (laughs) If you could take our listeners to Honk and sort of describe what it's like to be there and just picture yourself walking through, like what what happens at Honk? You come up from the red line in the middle of Davis Square and directly across the street there's a loud band performing and they're playing to a group of probably, oh, I'd say 500 to 1,000 people gathered around them. They are in the middle. You can't tell where the band leaves off and you can't tell where the audience begins. Um, In Davis Square, there are seven or eight venues like that, these little nooks and crannies in the regular streetscape where bands just can perform and audiences can form very easily. There is continuous music from morning till night. You can just stroll along and hear hear the sounds as you walk by. You can look at the program and target particular bands you want to hear. But it's an experience that you don't have at most other festivals. There, there was, there was a moment when we thought we'd we'd uh, make a kind of comical Kickstarter reward by giving people all access passes to Honk, which, if you have ever seen Honk, is kind of silly because there's no. The fact that we don't use stages also means there's no backstage. Um, so anyone who comes to the Honk Festival has an all-access pass, and it's free. And 
then there's the parade from Davis Square down Mass Avenue into Oktoberfest at Harvard Square. And, you know, the parade is the place where the visual elements of Honk, in addition to the audio elements, really come to the fore. I mean, one of the formative influences on Honk was the Bread and Puppet Theater that currently reside in upstate Vermont. And for people who don't know what Bread and Puppet is, it is a combination circus, brass band, puppet festival, um, where they create these magnificent 30-foot puppets. And they have been an inspiration to, to people all over the country and all over the world, and in particular, Honk, in this, in this instance. So people have taken creating um, spectacular visual elements for the festival to heart. And that that's definitely part of the parade. And that becomes part of the political messaging. Almost all of the bands are interspersed with community groups that represent issues from immigration to housing justice to environmental justice. And this creates a parade with a very definite political statement. And then we march into Oktoberfest in Harvard Square, which is a decidedly commercial festival, which is kind of an interesting contradiction. What are examples of how the bands in Honk have contributed to activism? Some examples of campaigns that you've been and the bands have been involved with. Yeah, even in the Honk Festival itself, we, we never imagined Honk as like a one-time event. We sort of imagined Honk more as a process of what we should be doing all year long. <laughs> and in fact, many, if not most, of the bands who perform at Honk do this same kind of performance all year long. We have been performing, in fact, this afternoon... Before I came here, I was at a demonstration at the State House pushing for rent control. Um, there was like six musicians who showed up, and it added a dimension to the demonstration that I think is appreciated. So the first thing is that music infuses most demonstrations with an extra measure of energy. But more than that, we're now trying to integrate our music with the kind of stuff that goes on uh, at a rally or a march. Um, it used to be, before we started coordinating with the groups that we support, that there would be a tension between chanters and music. Um, yeah. We'd be playing a song, somebody would start a chant, and then either you're working at cross purposes to one another, or we're drowning out the chant while we're trying to respect the demonstration, uh, so we stop playing, and that's frustrating. What we've taken to doing recently is coordinating chants and music. So we now work with chant leaders to integrate their chants into our music. Mm. So we will begin a song from our, you know, largely New Orleans repertoire. Um, and at some point in the song, we'll drop out all the melody instruments and retain the rhythm section. And we will begin the chant they were going to chant over that rhythm section. Uh -huh. So the chant becomes part of the performance of the song. So it's, it's sort of a seamless political statement in that way. Uh -huh. Well, building on that, um, I haven't mentioned this to you, but in my the nonprofit I used to work for, Maskosh, we were part of organizing a protest, and we invited 
the uh, second line mm. social aid and pleasure society brass, brass band, band. Um, to participate. However, um, Uh-oh. well, no, it was perfectly terrific to have the, the band there. And it was a very successful protest. But what I wanted to ask you about was since you've been thinking much more about how to align the work of the band with the work of the organizers, um, if you could give some advice to people like me and others who organize protests. Oh, the first thing I want to tell people is don't have a rally that is essentially 30 speakers delivering speeches that are not terribly exciting, that most of the people in the audience have already heard and already believe. That, to me, does not rally a rally. We are starting to be proactive in reaching out to groups that we want to work with rather than waiting for someone to invite us to a demo. Because when we simply get invited to a demo, it is often the case that we play a role more like the entertainment than part of the politics. And what we are trying to assert here is that we can be part of the politics, um, and that's a much more appropriate role. It, it, in fact, enhances the organization and the power of the demonstration. So we're working with groups to include us in the planning for demonstrations. We're working with groups asking them to name their chant leaders in advance and give us a list of chants, and in some cases have their chant leaders come to one of our rehearsals so we can coordinate their chants with our music in a way that they will understand how that process works. And that's been gratifying when it works. Um, and more and more bands are doing that now. I mean, it, that used to be sort of an innovative thing, and now it's pretty routine that, that bands are using their own repertoires to enable people to, to chant over. I mean, bands more and more are taking on visual elements and street theater elements of the whole process. I mean, we've been working closely uh, with Extinction Rebellion, for example, and a few weeks ago we occupied the bridge in the seaport and, you know, we're playing music while they're building a geodesic dome in the middle of the street. So we're adding visual elements, we're adding street theater to the mix, and the more and more you can integrate all of those elements together, the more powerful the demonstration becomes. We heard you mention Honk started in Somerville, I understand. It did, and right here uh, in Davis Square. Now there are Honk <clears throat> festivals all over the world. Yeah. How many? 22. Mm -hmm. Wow. Five in Brazil. Mm. And so are brass bands a phenomenon that has been prevalent in other parts of the world? Yeah. In fact, I've just, uh, we've just finished, myself and a couple of colleagues have just finished co-editing a book on Honk, and I had the joy of writing the history chapter. And the story of brass is fascinating because it is the same story all over the world, which is brass begins as a military application. Um, brass and percussion begin as, you know, ways to signal armies. And what you can see almost everywhere in the world is that most people's first experience of a brass band is an invading colonial army. <laughs> Um, but then an interesting phenomenon happens when 
Either the army is defeated or the army departs for one reason or another. Often they leave the brass instruments behind. Local people pick up the brass instruments having never seen them before and they learn to play them and they indigenize them and all of a sudden the tools of war become repurposed for a whole other spectrum of, of uh, stuff. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned uh, Brazil, and as you are well aware, I'm sure, Capoeira, as an example, uh, was also a, a, a sort of a protest um, dance. And a martial uh, art. That ha- a martial art, but it, ha- it was sort of had to be uh, not blatantly a martial art because it, it was something that yes. they had to sort of create. And I'm wondering... If that's true for brass bands as well, like during uh, the times of slavery, where songs were also a message that was more of a secret uh, organizing tool. And I'm wondering if you're aware of brass bands uh, kind of being used with more messaging and music that uh, in certain countries or certain parts of the world where you can't be as blatant, whether that's been used as well. You know... Occupying public spaces in the way that it happens in, you know, Carnival in Trinidad and Latin America is itself a political statement. It's a statement about, you know, who gets to be in public spaces, what kinds of sounds are appropriate in public spaces. Um, And those, you know, historically, those are events in which normal social and power relations become inverted. And these inversions are very clearly political statements. And in some ways, they are understood as such. I'll tell you an interesting story about something that was happening in um, in Rio. We have video footage where there was a very large bloco, and blocos in, in Latin America are these huge huge assemblages of people, all of whom know the same repertoire. They get together like 100, 150 strong, like the School of Honk, um, and they perform together. There was a huge blocko occupying one of the uh, subway stations, and the cops invaded the demonstration, and they roughed up the musicians uh, to some extent, but that wasn't the goal because what you see in the video is the cops confiscating the instruments. Mm-hmm. The video shows the cops not not beating the demonstrators so much as dragging the tubas and the drums off with them. Um, they are trying to shut down the music, I think. In some ways, they understand the power of the music, and that's the thing they want to shut down. Mm. I'm going to tie this to um, history of honk in Somerville. Has honk changed over the last 13 years? And how, if it has? Yeah, I mean, I want to take this back to the question that you first asked, um, which is how the honk festival develops, because um, there was a, a moment where I think we were in danger of becoming victims of our own success. Like, between the first, first three years of honk, Um, the size of the festival doubled in terms of the number of bands we invited. Um, And that kind of growth could have kept on happening and we could have become, you know, a very huge single festival. And that troubled us. We, We spent a lot of time reflecting on that and imagining how we wanted to grow. And when push came to shove, we decided we did not want to outgrow our roots in Davis Square. 
we decided the way to grow the festival was to encourage other people to do their own festivals. And that's what happened beyond anyone's expectations. I mean, bands would come to honk and we'd make very clear to them that they could do this too. And bands would go home and start their own festivals. And that rippled throughout the United States. You know, within the first few years, Seattle and Austin, Texas and Detroit and Providence and New York um, all had honk festivals. And then it just kept on going to the point where we are now in Australia. We're in South America. There's a festival being developed in London right now. Um, so it's become this worldwide phenomenon. And that plugs into an even larger movement because one of the things we're very clear about is that as cool as we think honk is, we're also very clear that honk did not start the idea of brass bands playing in the street. There, there are a lot of traditions that predate honk by decades, if not centuries, where brass bands play in the street. And we have now plugged into that whole larger, you know, the fanfare tradition in Europe, the carnival tradition in South America, what goes on in New Orleans. Honk is now a part of that whole international activating public space. Some of honk is overtly political. Um, some of honk is not overtly political. <clears throat> but does the overtly political part of honk exist in other places or did it exist as an activist tradition before honk? No, it's a mixed bag. I mean, when we say that Honk is a festival of activist street bands, we try to the extent possible to mobilize bands who are active in their communities. And activism, as you correctly point out, is a very controversial statement even within Honk. Um, so what is activism is a very big question that keeps getting answered in different ways. And the answer comes down really to what kinds of activism are acceptable. And different bands and different people have different answers to that question. So some people will argue that fun, the fun of playing, the fun of occupying public space is itself a political statement. Um, when we talk about occupying public space, one of the questions we have to ask is, Reclaiming public space for whom? One of the things that we feel critical of about our own festival is that, you know, honk is very hip. It's the kind of hip we have contributed measurably to this definition of hipness in Somerville that sort of encourages the kind of gentrification that inevitably leads to displacement, and that is not the goal. Um, so when we talk about reclaiming public space, I think the challenge for a festival like Honk is how do you reclaim public space in such a way that, that empowers the constituency that was there originally? Mm. And, and along those lines, I'm wondering, it seems like there's an effort to try to ensure a diversity of participation from people of color and people from different parts of the world, uh, yeah. not Anglo-Saxon per se. And I'm wondering about that. And I, I actually, I have to say, I I noticed the difference in when, when we saw a Haitian group perform who the audience was that was sort of taking photos and, right. and, and other groups that were more... Anglo. Uh, yeah. There was sort of a, 
I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, left to its own devices, you know, Honk is a largely white middle class movement with a fair amount of diversity along lines of age, gender, and sexuality. And I think it's because of the privilege of the white middle class that we are the people who have the time to play in the street for free. Um, And so the task for us is to figure out how to use that privilege to give back. Um, But at the same time, we want to encourage more voices within the honk movement. And so, for example... Um, We have had a black New Orleans band at the Honk Festival ever since it began, every single year. That is a commitment because of what New Orleans culture means to us politically. Um, We have uh, made it a point to invite Haitian rah-rah bands um, and try to incorporate that sound into the festival. We've always had Brazilian drum lines in the festival, and we've been really encouraging um, um, all female and gender non-binary bands. Um, They are becoming much more visible in the festival. And so part of what we're trying to do is showcase a diversity of voices that people would not normally come into contact with at your average brass band festival. And in fact, some of the bands are not brass bands, right? Like... uh you had a um, drum drum band, yeah. Brazilian drum band. Yeah, there was no brass in that band. None. There was a street band. It was a street band. Well, that's what we actually call it. the the festival. Formally, is called the a, a festival of actors activist street bands. We don't use the term brass in the title of the festival. And what what does it mean to be a street band? I think it means performing acoustically at street level. Um, what what does street level mean? Well, one of the things that I think makes Honk different than most festivals is there are no stages at Honk, which is Mm. to say there are no stages to elevate bands above audiences. Um, Bands play at street level. We are playing as part of an assemblage of people. So this automatically reduces the distance between artist and audience. And has a way of inviting people in, which is something we encourage. That's part of the mission of the band. To our way of thinking, there are no audiences, that everybody's part of the band. We are all participants in one way or another. We are either blowing the horn or we're dancing to it. That's what I want to see. Uh, to build on your earlier uh, comment about the distinction between folk music and um, and street bands, and I think... You just answer that in terms of not just is the music engaging, but it's physically set up in a way that people can literally yeah. be in in the band, yeah. <laughs> even if you're not a that, performer. And, and, and that and that's that's part of the goal. I mean, there's no stages, there's no electricity, there's no sound reinforcement systems, there's no sound checks, there's no delays between performances. There's just music, continuous music, and it's unmediated. I mean, it is experienced directly, face-to-face, you're part of the music. Another thing to add is that we have been adding more and more activist elements into the festival itself. And so now on Fridays, for example, we, we partner with local organizations that we work with during the year um, and encourage them to stage events on that Friday afternoon, and we pair them with bands who are coming in from out of town. So everybody 
has that experience of, of doing a political rally um, as part of Honk. And then uh, another event that has become quite popular at Honk is the Sunday evening demonstration at the ICE Detention Center, mm. um, where we have performed every year. I mean, for people who don't know Boston, the ICE Detention Center is located um, across the street from a highway entrance that is elevated to the point where if we climb up on the elevated ramp, we are at a level that is directly across from the cell blocks that house the immigrant detainees who are awaiting deportation. And we perform for them. And it's one of the most moving events you've ever seen because they know we're coming because we work with the organizations that work with them. Um, They know we're coming. They can see and hear us from their cells and we can see and hear them from where we are perched on the highway entrance. And when the music starts playing, you can see the inmates flicking the lights on and off in the cells to the beat of the music, dancing wildly in the backlit windows that we can see from across the street, making heart signs for us with their hands. It's an incredibly moving event, and the feedback we've gotten from folks who have been in there who have since been released is that they consider this you know, just incredible support Um, This event has become so popular that we now have to rent two buses to get people down there. Um, We are performing with probably 150 musicians acting as one band. Um, It's a really moving event. And this year, interestingly, this is the year where the sheriff's office in um, Boston has canceled Mm -hmm. the contract with ICE. So ICE was scheduled to move all of the detainees out of the facility over the next couple of months. Um, And lo and behold, they upped that schedule and did it on the Friday preceding honk. So that by the time we got there this year, the cell blocks were empty. There was one cell with four guys in it in the detainee area. And we played for them for an hour and then marched along the sidewalk and performed for all of the other sections of the prisons uh, that were not earmarked for immigrants. Who are, who are the groups that uh, you partnered with? or uh, Resist the Raids. Um, I think they were the primary group. The Rude Mechanical Orchestra from New York, which is a, a radical street band in New York, first started the ICE demonstration, and we've gradually taken over the sort of administrative aspects of doing the event. Was Honk embraced from the start by the cities? There was some distrust and there was a fair amount of relationship building that in some cases took years. I'll give you one story. We used the Veteran of Foreign Wars Hall down in Davis Square as our clubhouse. The VFW Hall is where we store the instrument cases, we have breakfasts there, um, etc., and the first year of the parade was we staged the parade in the parking lot of the VFW Hall, and the group leading the parade was Veterans for Peace. <laughs> and when the vets of foreign wars saw Vets for Peace in their parking lot leading our parade, they went ballistic. Um, and that created 
you know, a real tension that had to be managed. And we spent years building that relationship to the point where the VFW now calls us and asks us when we're coming back. They have given us access to the bar in the clubhouse that only members can go to. So it's an interesting take on the kind of relationship building that goes on in a festival where political purity is not an option. If you're trying to produce a festival like this, you're going to get your hands dirty. And I think for me, the question is not whether Honk is riddled with contradictions. It is. The question for me is how well we manage the contradictions. And I think so far, the thing that makes me proudest of Honk is that I think we have managed to handle the contradictions without losing our way. So you had Veterans for Peace. Yeah. And you had the VFW Hall. Yep. And you managed to um, work your way through the contradictions. Yes. How did you do that? <laughs> just, just constantly building the relationship. There is now a fair amount of trust. I mean, they... They understand. I don't know what they expected veterans to peace for peace to be like, other than veterans who who happen to be in favor of peace, which should be the goal of war in the first place. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what they expected them to be like, but um, once we started interacting and they understood that we were quite reliable people and that we may have views that differ politically, but that we are willing to engage people in discussions of those views. Uh, we don't shrink from that. Um, so is We there a, came away with a mutual respect that enabled that relationship to grow. And so is there a lesson there, for, from your point of view, for nonprofit leaders and social justice leaders who are trying to make a difference in the world? What would the lesson be well, um, I think if 2016 taught us anything, it's that we have to talk mm -hmm. to people who don't already believe what we believe. Mm -hmm. um, I think the task of the left is to figure out how to talk to people who aren't yet on the left. And do you think that uh, that this sort of street music appeals to people who are not on the left? Well, we hope so, and I would say it has more of a chance of being able to do that than most of the speeches I hear at demonstrations. Mm. Terrific. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio. Thank you.